happening now. We want to welcome our viewers from across the United States and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Good morning, good day, good evening. My name is Jason Neifer, and I am the Assistant Director and Curriculum Director of the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual school located on the University of Montana campus in lovely and somewhat chilly Missoula, Montana. And this is episode 117 of the EdTech Situation Room on December 5th. 2018. And joining me, as always, Dr. Wes Fryer. Good evening, Wes. How are you doing this evening? Good evening. I'm curious on how cool it is there. We are anticipating three to five inches of snow, uh, possibly mixed with ice, which oftentimes becomes an Armageddon-level event for us in, in Oklahoma. So probably going to be somewhere in the in the uh, you know upper 20s. So what, what's Missoula contending with today? Well, um, we, we had a snow dump happen a couple of year, weeks ago when I was in Costa Rica, and it hasn't really snowed since. We've got some light uh, flurries here and there, but uh, mostly it's just cold. So it's going to get into the lower teens, upper um, single digits, probably middle of next week, uh, earlier, later next week. So very December weather for here in Missoula, but... Usually I'm pretty happy. I don't mind the cold as much as I do, and I don't really mind the snow. It's just kind of a pain in the butt because not everyone can drive in that, and unlike most other areas of the country, snow here doesn't shut much down, so there's zero chance, zero chance of a cold snow day here in Montana. And I work for the online school, so it doesn't really matter anyway. So, like, like if the university ever I couldn't get in there, I would just log in at home. So There you go. Yeah. The dream of some school superintendents goes on no matter what. Right, right. We'll just come into your house and then call that good. So, well, Wes, why don't you tell the crowd, what is the EdTech Situation Room all about? We are all about predicting the future with incredible accuracy so that you can have stock picks that will be guaranteed to provide not only for your own retirement future, but that of your children. No, that is not correct, and hopefully that will not be transcribed, getting me in trouble with uh, bodies like Elon Musk did when he you know, said wild things about his stock, not uh, having any... Um, uh, what is that called? Very, very uh, grandiose visions of that. We are about analyzing the week's technology news through an educational lens. We have a number of articles every week on edtechsr.com slash links that you can check out live during the show or after the fact. We do glean the ones that we do have time to talk about and put them onto our show notes, which you can find all those episodes and show notes at edtechsr.com, subscribing to us via our audio versions, video versions on YouTube. And because of his new do tonight, you will probably want to check out the video version of Dr. Jason Neifer. Where should we start tonight, Jason, with our analysis and discussion? Well, I'll admit, the, uh, and I know that there was a lot of toy traffic on this particular issue the last uh, 72 hours, but I'd like to start um, on the interesting announcement that the good folks at Microsoft made on Monday that they are planning on taking the Chromium browser and building a new version of some kind of Internet browser uh, to replace Microsoft Edge on Windows 10. And there's a number of angles that I think both Wes and I can talk about tonight. But I want to start with the fact, uh, let me explain what Chromium is if you don't happen to know that. So Google Chrome is the web browser that Google releases, and it just so happens all Google tools work very well on there, and it was uh, kind of an upstart for Microsoft, and eventually became the, the top browser. I think it was like 2013, 2014. 
uh, Mimulo earlier, they became the, the top browser that, that people use. I think it's 65% of all users use Google Chrome on searching. And Chromium is the web browser that's also released and somewhat developed by, by Google that is an open source version that Chrome is built from. And so they look a lot alike and they act a lot alike, but a Google Chromium is a 100% open source project, which means you can go see all of the code as much as you want to, tweak it, adapt it, turn it into something else. In fact, a lot of other uh, uh, browser projects, Opera is a good example of this. Opera's been around for 20 years. It's been a, a very robust uh, fourth or fifth. Uh, uh, party browser that, that's never been at the top of the game, but a lot of users like Opera. Opera is now built on top of Chromium. And when Microsoft announces it's going to abandon Edge, which is the browser that is the dominant browser in Windows 10, and move towards uh, some kind of Chromium-based browser, that's a really huge deal. So, Wes, I know that you had some traffic back and forth, and I believe that your son got involved in the conversation, if I, if I saw correctly on Twitter, which is super interesting. But let's start with uh, this question. Does this impact you at all as an IT director? Not really. I mean, we put both the Chrome browser and Firefox on all of the Mac OS and Windows OS computers that we, that we um, you know, manage as a school. Obviously, on the, on the Chromebook platform, we have a few Chrome boxes. It's, it's Chrome only. Uh, we have a few users that are, that are using uh, Microsoft Edge, um, as a related aside, I had a pretty negative experience in the last month with Edge uh, when I was using it for the one thing it's good for, in my view, which was to download Chrome. But Bing, which is the default search engine, actually provided a spamware malware uh, website as one of the top hits, not giving a hint that it was, you know, not a legit site. Um, and I'm embarrassed to say this was quick. I literally, I even, I even clicked it and had it installing before I realized what was happening. I ended up wiping the whole box again back to Windows 10 initially. But anyway, that, that prompted me to write a post uh, that friends don't let friends use Microsoft Edge. So the article that you mentioned that our, that my, our son had, uh, had shared on Twitter, didn't do that very often, was really lamenting the loss of competition and saying how competition is important and, you know, Microsoft, Microsoft by giving up, uh, Edge and really the, the uh, web browser market um, is just giving in to Google and that's going to be bad for us. Uh, my reply on that was don't give up on Firefox. I mean, Mozilla as an open source uh, platform not only is, is robust and extensible in the way that it can use extensions the same way that Chrome can, but, <clears throat> you know, one of the articles last week uh, talked about this this phrase surveillance capitalism and uh, the title of the article is that targeted uh, advertising is, uh, is, is breaking the web and like destroying the world, which is a bit of hyperbole. But, you know, some of the articles we have to talk about later tonight about Facebook, I mean, the fact that the web is, is so built today on the harvesting of personal information and the need that we have for privacy champion alternatives to these browsers. I think that Firefox has a very bright future. I think looking through my crystal ball that we're going to have more and more people becoming aware of this and becoming more advocates 
for privacy and so that Firefox is going to, you know, probably, you know, slip further ahead as, as Edge goes away. So I am not going to miss it. It's not going to affect our technology department. It is interesting to see, you know, how fortunes change because it wasn't that many years ago that we were seeing lawsuits and all kinds of angst over Internet Explorer's dominance and how they were basically going to take over the world. And now we have a new person, you know, new company we're complaining about, and, and it's called Google. So is uh, your web experience going to uh, be affected at all by the disappearance of Edge? Um, no, only from the standpoint that, that Edge for me is kind of a, a third choice browser when it comes to when I'm, when I'm working on a Windows platform. And, and I have to admit, in the last six months, I've really moved almost all of my daily computing to, to the Chrome OS platform. So obviously, I have just the one browser choice there. The reason why Edge was interesting to me was, was really twofold. First, I did find it to be fast on the Windows platform. And if you are... Uh, on a low-end PC, so I'm talking about the $150, uh, like the HP Stream 11 or Stream 13, if you're using Edge as a browser on that platform, Edge was faster than, than Chrome or Firefox. And so, uh, you know, I think that's partly because the, the tight-knit integration between Windows 10 and Edge made that a, a better choice, especially on low-end hardware. But for me, I have to say, from my vantage point as, as a guy that runs a state virtual school, I think it's good news for a reason that's probably bad news for people looking for competition in that since I support students, uh, you know, thousands of students at a time on hundreds of different platforms, whether it's a personal computer or a school computer, one of the, the easiest ways to troubleshoot, and we teach our students this, that if you can go to a second or third browser and try something, oftentimes you'll be able to uh, get rid of incompatibility problems. But I would say that if um, Microsoft starts building towards the Chromium base, it's more likely to make Chrome a go-to browser. It's going to work in a lot of, of edge cases. It's a weird way to use that. It's a, was it intended to be a clever comment, but uh, the edge cases we sometimes, uh, sometimes utilize. One of the hardest parts about being in a program that delivers digital content is that the more, um, I guess, high-end the content, what I mean by high-end is more multimedia, more um, interaction, more fancy animations or, or, or interactives, then the more likely it is to break even a mainstream browser. And so for me, that kind of, uh, you know, chromium taking over sort of thing, like I get why that's a bad thing in the big picture, but from a very narrow standpoint, it's actually pretty good news for a program like mine. Yeah, I uh, I think that um, you know the the the, ma the maturation of the web and the way in which Google has has shifted uh, lots of of and App Apple has too, right? I mean, rejecting Flash, what you know, what Steve Jobs did um, as far as iOS and and really, <laughs> it's not dead, but it's um, pretty I think pretty far along in its. Um, in its life, I don't know what I'm trying to say. Basically, I don't think Flash has has a bright future at this point in terms of the web, and that has a lot to do with things that have happened with with browsers, etc. Um, you know, I I think we do need to be be wary, but you know, that, that's why it's so great that we have Firefox. I don't know something we might want to get a guest on at some point who would really take a very strong position about privacy and, you know, somebody who is an absolute ardent, you know, you need to be using DuckDuckGo for search. You need to be using, you know, uh, Firefox with, or, or Firefox Focus. Actually, that's a, a browser on on iOS that, you know, is a, is a privacy browser. I don't know. I'm, I, I have not 
drank that Kool-Aid uh, because I still enjoy so much, and I think I'm going to continue to enjoy the powerful algorithms that Google that Google provides for us that help help us filter and find content, right, and, yeah. and be able to, um, you know, fil- filter the the mass of of the web. So anyway, I, I'm. Uh, Oh, this is what I was going to say. Microsoft's a smart company, right? Didn't we talk last week about them eclipsing Apple as the most profitable co- company, right? This is a this is a big change. We've saw saw Apple, you know, take that leadership and and so Microsoft under their their new leadership um is really identifying niches. They're really moving into the cloud for business and for enterprise. Um but they're I think making smart plays and they're deciding, you know, where it doesn't make sense to be making investments. And um, it's it's pretty fascinating because they don't they don't see this as something that they need to dominate. And, and also, you know, in the same way with with the office platform and then Windows in general, I think they're they're wanting to play on a variety of different devices and, and be relevant in a multi-platform world, which is a radical departure from where Microsoft has been before. So right. I guess my, my thought as a technology director and thinking about ed tech is, I mean, we should all be open to changes and to new possibilities. Um, I wrote a post actually last night about uh, advice for parents, and it's really about internet filtering at home and then Chrome devices um, and how easy they are to be able to manage. But part, I closed with a little reference to the baby duck syndrome, right, which is that we all can, can imprint with technology initially, and then we tend to just always compare to that, maybe even be romantically desiring the return to that original experience, whether it was with a smart board or with a, you know, a Windows PC or, or whatever. So it's hard psychologically, I think, for us to part with our old ways. Uh, but, you know, Mike, I am really glad that Microsoft today is a vibrant company attempting to innovate and, and not just attempting, they're succeeding. Right. In, in terms of being able to find ways to become um, the most profitable company in the world. So uh, I'm not going to second guess them uh, in terms of saying this. This is really stupid. I think they're continuing to yeah. identify where they're going to be able to make the most impact. And this is a, a very big hat tip. I think to Google and the work that they've done. Um, one of the articles I think we've got in here talks about how hard it is to develop web browsers and especially to make them, you know, very stable and fast. And right. anyway, I think it's going to be uh, a non-event in terms of um, our computing life at school. Um, but you know, again, eyes to Firefox, and maybe in a, a future show in 2019, we can have the privacy show or something. And I, I would love to to hear some people, and, I'm, and a couple of people are coming to mind who are just really ardent about how important privacy is and how we just should not be, you know, giving up so much data and information, and we should be much more protective right. of our, our our browsing habits, even you know where we're going and and uh, that data that is collected from us as we you know drop off our breadcrumbs throughout the web as we're surfing during the day. Right, absolutely. And then one last thought here, just broadly about browsers, and I alluded to this earlier, that something that I think is very true is that tech-savvy users aren't 100% on one browser. They oftentimes have at least two browsers, if not three or four, available to them, and switching around is kind of part of the gig, right? Because very few, well, actually none of the browsers available are universally amazing, right? Like oftentimes, uh, the more fancy the things you're doing on the web, going to a different browser can be a better experience. And so I have Firefox um, I have a, an iMac at work, uh, uh, on my desk at work, and now becoming an old iMac, but Firefox and Safari and Chrome are all three browsers on 
that particular piece. And Firefox has really made a lot of advances in the last two years, ignoring the privacy piece, which is huge, right? Uh, they've made a lot of, of uh, interesting um, movements towards more privacy stuff in, in the last year. But we reported on the pod, um, here on the podcast a year ago when they introduced their kind of their new engine that is now rolled out as part of the mainstream Firefox browser. It's really fast, so it's not a real compromised browser. So, you know, if you uh, keep multiples on your machine and switch back and forth for fun. All right. Well, uh, let's talk a little bit about Apple, if that's okay. Um, we have come to the point in the year um, at school where we're going to have to decide and are deciding, you know, what way are we going to go? Apple's come out with some new portables, uh, new MacBook Air, and then, you know, this new iPad that can masterfully handle three gig Photoshop files and just do crazy, crazy things. and looks like more of a desktop replacement. So the two articles are actually an article and a video that I dropped in. Our, our uh, first one's from nine to five Mac from December 2nd. It's called the state of the Mac in 2018. And uh, this is a article by Bradley Chambers uh, going through the different options that you've got, not just on the, the Mac air side, but you know, MacBook, MacBook air, MacBook pro, um, and then you've got, you know, Mac Pro, I, iMac Pro, Mac Mini, you know, the whole thing. So um, there's also a video that I put in here, which has a, a really good comparison between three. Um, the MacBook, which is the USB-C only, you know, really small one, um, which is my daily carry, actually. Um, the new MacBook Air and then the MacBook Pro. Um, and the interesting, it's not a very clear set of, of of laptop options in the same way that it was when jobs came back here's your consumer device here's your pro device um if you step up to the new macbook air um you're only about a hundred dollars away from a pro and you know just a lot more speed and a lot better better screen um where I am and where I think we're going to be as a school um, is basically um, staying with last year's MacBook Air. And a big part of that is how many different devices we support and then how many other peripherals we have to have. Because if you go to the new MacBook Air, for instance, it's a USB-C device, so that's a new AC charger. You cannot put a USB thumb drive or plug in your smart board or other kinds of USB-A peripherals right into it. You're going to have to have an adapter in order to do that. Um, and, you know, with the size of our department and, and things that, you know, we've just still got a lot of 2012 MacBook Pros that, you know, we're in the process of, of refreshing some this year and, and then the rest, the majority of the remaining ones are going to be refreshed next year. But anyway, that's kind of where we're falling with that. Um, plus in terms of cost, I think we're like 900 and, is it eight, 850 or right around $900 educationally for that older MacBook Air? Uh, but I think you're up at uh, almost $1,200, $1,150 with the educational discount if you step up to the new one. So I think it's a bit of a confusing landscape with so many choices. And that video is interesting because in terms of, you know, weights and thicknesses and size of the trackpad and all this kind of stuff. I would kind of expect or hope that Apple is going to shake this out a little bit and make it a little clearer. But for me, I mean, this, this, uh, MacBook, which has, um, you know, doesn't have an Intel processor. I should know the name. It might be, is it an M processor? I don't know what it is. I think it's the same, same one that was in the same vintage, um, iPad that uh, pro at, at the time that it came out. I mean, this is an amazing daily carry, right? It is so thin. It is so light. 
Uh, I don't do video processing on it. Uh, but, but, you know, for me, it has been phenomenal. Um, uh, the biggest disadvantage is cer certainly the adapters. I mean, I literally just have this one charger and it's happened to me a couple times where I've, I've been charging it at school and I've, you know, forgot it. I have no other charger at home. And so I just, I can't charge it. I, I should do that. I could get some other USB adapters as we've, I think, talked about, though those aren't all created equal and you got to be kind of careful, you know, when you go out shopping for USB-C. So um, that's sort of where we're at with uh, looking at, at the state of the Mac. Um, it is important to note that the Mac minis are pretty powerful now. One of the things that I didn't realize until, you know, the last few months is you can take an old iMac that's not too old, like relatively recent, and you can plug that in via uh, Thunderbolt and it can just become a display for your, you know, machine. And so I've even thought, hey, if we wanted to, we've got a few 27 inch, you know, really nice iMacs, but they're five years old, you know, throw a nice Mac mini with tons of RAM in there. And, you know, I don't know. I'm not sure what, what we're going to end up doing with that, but great to see Apple updating all these lines. At one time, you know, we were hearing pundits lament sort of, you know, how Certainly on the, the trash can iMac, I mean, that one's been, been left behind. But in terms of everything else, there's been uh, a good commitment to updates and revisions. But I think right now there are so many different choices. Um, if you're a consumer, that's going to be different, you know, than if you're looking at buying for the IT department and being on the cutting edge may make more sense. But I think it may be still a year away until we make that jump into USB-C land. Um, and we just, you know, also enjoy the, the relatively less expensive, you know, save $250, $300 sticking with last year's um, MacBook Air. So I know, Jason, that when you were tweeting about the October Apple event, I think I read some comments where you were thinking that might even change your calculus for devices that you might purchase. Were you thinking more along the MacBook Air or the, sorry, iPad Pro side of things for that? Or, you know, where are you if you look at, at Apple's lineup? I'm probably not headed back to to the Apple piece, at least not right now. Um, although, uh, and I forgot to post this actually. I may uh, may get this up here in a moment. Uh, there was a viral video that went around yesterday uh, on the. And I don't know what the show is called now. It's uh, um, it's the morning show TV show with uh, Kelly Ripa and the other guy that hosts American Idol. Can't remember his name now. There was a, uh, a viral video that went around yesterday because he showed, the other host guy showed Kelly Ripa something about um, that, uh, he, that that most people don't know, that you can hold down the space bar on the Apple keyboard, and after a few seconds it turns into like a little trackpad, so you can easily go and find a space, like if you want to correct something in a text piece, and I looked at that, and I was like, no, really? And then I grabbed my wife's iPhone and did it, and it was the, it was amazing, right? Like, I didn't know I could do that. And Can you repeat just, that? What, what, so what do you do? Okay, so you got your iPhone with you? I got it right here. Okay, so just type some random characters. Like just in notes. Okay, yeah, that works. Okay. And then hold down the space bar with your thumb okay. until it kind of turns all gray. Yeah. And then that turns into like a little trackpad. Oh, wow. Nice. That's, that's wild. Yeah. And it's like, that's such a Mac thing, right? Or such an Apple thing, right? Because like almost nothing's documented, right? All these amazing features are, are you know, they, they, all these new uh, uh, updates of, of OS 10 or, or, or iOS come with things that you don't discover, but that might actually be enough to get me back to an iPhone. Actually. Wow. 
impressed with that. But, you know, I'm pretty into the Google and stuff now. I think um, I'm happy that it feels like there's some life in the design crew uh, uh, over at uh, over at Apple. But the thing that, that I think might get me back at some point is that it's been, I mean, the last new uh, uh, Apple hardware I had, well, I think it was in 2013, actually, is when the last time I got an iMac. And the thing that really threw me off personally was when they didn't update the, the Mac Pro at all, and then when they did, the Mac Pro was the garbage can Mac, which was too expensive for me. I couldn't afford that, and I couldn't update any of the components of my own, so I couldn't do it a little more cheaply. They, they kind of lost me a little bit as a customer. And so now I'm pretty happy in Chrome land, a Chrome Android land, but... Um, I, I think they're heading in the right direction, to be honest, and I, I'm looking forward to maybe in the next couple of years uh, doing things. The new uh, iPad Pro is uh, wickedly expensive, but uh, the fact that the USB-C is awesome, the screen is beautiful. I actually saw one in the wild on the way down to Costa Rica a couple weeks ago uh, on an airplane, and it's a beautiful piece of hardware. So I think they're heading in the right direction. This MacBook anticipated the future, right, dumping all ports except for USB-C and the yep. headphone jack. And so, like many other things, Apple is ahead of the game, you know, dumping floppy drives, dumping CD, DVD drives, you know, those kind of things. But I think we can say with confidence within, you know, three years, certainly four to five, USB-C is going to be dominant. The fact that that's now the, the new iPad's um, connector, I right. think it's only a matter of time before we see an iPhone come out that dumps the lightning connector and also goes USB-C. So, yeah, it's... uh yeah, you know, the calculations are different. Your finances, your needs, yeah. you know, what do you have to run? Um, all of all of those kinds of things. But yeah, it's uh it's good good to see I think a vibrant um Mac hardware ecosystem because yeah. I had some concern at one point, maybe just because I was reading pundits talking about this, that with all the success of the iPhone and that consumer facing that, that Apple was just not going to be paying attention to its computer users. And, you know, people have, I've heard people in, you know, videos, why the heck is Apple even continuing this old MacBook Air? Well, hey, there's us, you know, education folks that have major investments in the Mac platform. And you can't necessarily, you know, be, and you don't want to be necessarily on that immediate bleeding edge. You know, it, it takes some time. Uh, and there's a lot of considerations because you've got investments in other kinds of hardware peripherals, et cetera. So anyway, that is good. Good to see with, with the Apple ecosystem, but you know, I kind of hope to see some things shake out a little bit um, in terms of just, you know, so many different choices. Maybe things are going to tighten up a little bit. Sure. Where would you like to go next? Okay, I'm actually going to do a topic that may or may not be a larger one, and then Wes, I'm hoping you would then explain a little bit about this Chromebook filtering controversy, because that looks super interesting to me. So um, I want to talk about, this is from today, The Verge, uh, on, on December 5th, and it's a great article about the collapse of one of the, the larger and more popular YouTube kind of networks. They were called the Five Media, and um, earlier in November, they announced that they were just shutting their doors and... Uh, they laid employees off, 80 employees off, and they're still, the, the number of their sites, hundreds of thousands of dollars that seems to be missing, and creditors that they're demanding, and pay employees that haven't been paid. Uh, obviously, this is an interesting topic to me because, uh, you know, uh, uh, YouTube has been a bigger part of my life in the last 12 months, and I think part of it was 
uh, having a teenager in my home. I had an exchange student uh, last year who, uh, you know, watched a little bit of Netflix and a little bit of of commercial TV, but the vast majority of his TV time was was on YouTube. And um, you know, he just introduced me to a lot of interesting channels. Uh, he watches something called Good Mythical Morning. Have you seen Good Mythical Morning? These two dudes, I think they're in, in one of the Carolinas somewhere, do a daily show where it's uh, I, it's, it's kind of like stunty variety stuff, but not weird things, like just normal stuff. Like the one I watched last week was they were blind testing eight kinds of coffee to, to see if they could identify the coffee and, and the goofy and goony and stuff. But that's really created a renaissance for me of the amount of really amazing, interesting video channels there are. But the thing that it's kind of underlying all of this for me is there are a, a lot of, ch of channel networks that uh, are very large and a lot of times employ dozens or hundreds of employees and it's never entirely clear to me at least that there is a um, there's a real economic model there so the the company that shut down was called defy media Probably, I hadn't heard of most of these channels, even though I'm a, um, <laughs> I, I'm kind of a YouTube guy now. Uh, the one I did hear about, they actually sold off uh, uh, earlier in 2018 um, to uh, to help pay bills to try to keep the network on. That's called Screen Junkies, and Screen Junkies uh, they're best known for their honest movie trailers. They recreate movie trailers to uh, to kind of be a better uh, depiction of, of the movie in, in a very humorous way. But uh, Smush is the uh, probably the other popular brand there who I was vaguely familiar to me that uh, was interesting there. Um, and, uh, you know, there I think there's a, a – in the same way that I think we're trying to questioning how journalism funds itself in a world where there's free media, I always think about the YouTube twist there, right? Because obviously there are people making money on YouTube – uh, I would imagine that it's way fewer than um, those that are making absolutely nothing, even if they're producing interesting content on their channel. Um, but uh, that it's, it's an interesting story to me, right? Because I just I don't know if there's enough in free video, even if you're doing sponsorships, even if you're gaining ad revenue, even if you're turning on uh, partnership ad revenue with YouTube, there's enough there to sustain dozens or hundreds of employees. It is a fascinating article, and it's also a lesson in, in why we need to help educate kids about economics and entrepreneurship and about the need to get good advice. There's a creator there who um, who had millions, I think, followers, maybe two million, um, but really didn't sell out for cash. They just sold out for stock options, and now they're left with nothing. And he was he says in the article, you know, that's that's on us. It was it was my bad. Um, but you know, young people. Um, dealing with large figures, right? There's folks, you know, lots of, a fair number of folks, I think, making six-figure incomes, and it's a lot of money. Um, the other element that's so important here when we start to talk about YouTube is product placement and media literacy and the ways in which people may or may not uh, be handling themselves ethically with the positioning of products and, you know, paid placements. And this is this is a big deal. And... Um, 
You know, it just, we need to have media literacy in every school's curriculum. And, and part of it also, we had a conversation with our girls tonight at the dinner table, probably not hard to do with young people today. I mean, my wife had no idea who these, you know, YouTubers were that they were talking about. They had both seen these videos and it's a, there's a big gap of cultural literacy today between young people that are very tuned in to the YouTube culture and, you know, older adults or others that aren't. So. I think that's a fascinating article, and I'm glad you shared it. Yep. And uh, also, uh, if you aren't a big YouTube person, I'm not saying you should, you know, jump in and, and start watching three hours a day about anything in a bit, but spend a lot of time there. I think that you mentioned the culture gap, Wes. I think that's an important uh, piece here. Like, obviously, you know, with the sheer number of shows available, and I was laughing earlier today, I was reading another article. I, I hadn't saw this when I, I usually will review Saturday, uh, interesting-sounding Saturday Night Live skits on Sunday morning as part of my coffee-drinking ritual, and there was a, a funny uh Netflix uh, parody commercial that basically said that we're going to green light every show ever, and by the time you get to the end of our brand new show list, there'll be brand new ones at the top, so you can have infinite scroll and uh, other silly things, but there is shocking amounts of content that's available now um, in comparison to even 10 years ago, right? But the the additional point here is that, you know, I think it's useful for people to spend time on on just kind of clicking around YouTube to understand that there is an unbelievable trove of content there, you know, good, bad, or otherwise. Yeah, and we're hearing, uh, as we generally do, uh, think of um, if it bleeds, it leads, Neil Postman amusing ourselves to death. I mean, we usually hear about the negative stuff, right? So there's tremendous, you've talked about, you know, before, just really, you know, passionate geeks who, who do different things that are very interesting, and we can find those folks and, and follow them, and they can create content. And I was talking to my, uh, my youngest daughter tonight, uh, getting supper ready. She had watched a whole series of scientific videos that had just blown her mind. And we were talking about, you know, what does it mean to have 2 million followers? And somebody had tried to break that down. Like if you said everyone's name how, and it lasted a second, how long that would be. I mean, never before in the course of human history, since human beings have been on this planet, have individuals been able to communicate with such enormous swaths of brains, right? I mean, you had to have a lot of money, know someone who had a lot of money, and even then, if you got on a broadcast network, you know, now people can own satellites and have access to satellites. You know, in the past, it was, you know, radio towers and television towers. I mean, it's it's just, it is radically different. Um, and my geek of the week tonight, which, which I won't go into yet, but it deals with China and the ways that they're censoring freedom of expression. It's, um, we are definitely harvesting a bitter crop of, of what happens when you allow and empower, you know, anyone to have a voice and be able to, you know, establish a channel and then also use these powerful targeted advertising tools like we see on Facebook and, and other places. Uh, in terms of fake news and the, the uh, manipulation of, of the media and those kinds of things. But on the flip side, there is incredible positive to this, and, you know, we, we, we don't want to, to lose sight of that. Um, shout out to Peggy George, who is in our chat room, uh, was just telling Peggy that um, I've been dabbling in your comment about that, you know, iPhone feature. There are so many different features here that are not readily discoverable. Uh, and I've been, been toying and my wife has encouraged me to think about doing some kind of like face to face, you know, iPad, iPhone with Wes, you know, at a wine and cheese place or something that people can kind of pay to come. And then we just do cool tips and tricks, you know, with our device and with our phone. Um, anyway, I don't know. I may, I may see if I can find a place to actually do that over the holiday, but that, 
anyway, I've a lot a while back I was I thought of this entrepreneurial idea called the Webcast Cafe, right? Because there's so many different webcasts and things that are going on. Of course, Peggy George is the number one educational, you know, uh, professional development in the know person in terms of online conferences and content. If you don't follow Peggy George, shout out, you've got to do that if you're an educator. Um, but anyway, having a place where people could come and learn and then also, you know, have folks being filters for them because there's this world of content, right? But how do you connect to the content that is of interest to you? And especially when it comes to, you know, how can you use your device more effectively or how do you learn about these new, you know, techniques and, and tips and tricks? So uh, let's talk a little bit about a Chromebook controversy. Um, I put, I learned about this, first of all, shout out to, uh, from Kevin C. Tofel, who is a great tech journalist and has a, a great website on Chromebooks that's, that's definitely well worth checking out. He had shared a tweet to an article that I shared, uh, and my headline was, you know, or byline on Twitter, nightmare for school officials in any one-to-one laptop or device take-home initiative. <clears throat> the headline of this article is outcry for alleged sexual murder video on Ridgewood school laptop. And so this is up in <clears throat> New Jersey. And basically what happened apparently was that on the bus, an eight year old who had a school issued laptop, um, saw a murder video that another child had put on their device and so the mom testified before the school board, enraged, you can't unsee this, this is terrible, how could you let this happen to my child, you know, how could you uh, possibly do this um, outcry for alleged sexual murder video on Ridgewood School Laptop. That was, I think that was the original one from Patch, and I found one on the Fort Lee Daily Voice, uh, reading, writing, and arithmetic, Ridgewood mom says kids see porn violence on school laptops. Um, and then, oops, I lost you, Jason. Um, then the other one is, um, hopefully we're, I'm still online. I will keep talking in the hopes that we are still online. For some reason, Jason has gone dark. Um, I actually went and looked up the school board and, uh, found their, uh, minutes and video for, um, the, uh, December 3rd, or no, I guess it was December 4th. Newsletter, yeah, it was a December 3rd hearing that they had, or not hearing, it was a December 3rd board meeting that they had. And so their um, IT manager, uh, Sir Serhi Morun, um, quote, presented information on how the district monitors non-authorized web usage among district students using Chromebooks. And the comment was, it's a big challenge to monitor considering the sheer numbers of websites on the internet required by law. The district applies best practices using a combination of web filters and various third-party monitoring tools. No one tool is 100%. Oh, there's Jason. He's back. Hi, that was weird. It it told me, well, so, yeah, something weird's going on because uh, I got a, my phone told me that it lost connection. So I was keeping an eye on Google Wi-Fi. Yeah. And then you started getting all garbly, and then it disappeared. Yeah, you totally went dark for me. I kept talking because I didn't know if it was recording. So I'll go in and do some editing if I if I need to on this show. That's never never a fun thing. But actually, I mean, I thought it's not that bad. Okay, so uh, basically this, the school board had a hearing on December 3rd. Their IT director, I think called IT manager, gave a presentation. I've got a link to his slides. The district is doing a phenomenal job having multi-layers of filtering in place. 
And, you know, recognizing no one tool is 100%, they don't let Chromebooks go home with their youngest kids in elementary. Basically, they get to middle school, high school. That's when they, they go home. So, you know, my point about this is what a nightmare, you know. This could probably happen in any school. I mean, this can even happen just with phones, right? You don't have to have a school-issued device. It's any kind of screen um, because you can transfer, you know, videos and, and photos, you know, between devices and, and there's all kinds of ways to bypass filters, et cetera. Uh, so, uh, unfortunate to see this happen, of course, that, that it happened at all. Um, there's lots of layers to this. So, any thoughts that you have? Well, I mean, first, I, I'm just looking at these slides myself. These are really well done slides, and I think they really get to the core of the issue, which is it is impossible to totally protect. And the point you made earlier, Wes, that that no one knows, you know, and I would assume that that they're that they have logs that suggest that they're whatever this content is or whatever the origin of this content is. Didn't come over an internet connection? Well, that's the thing I read in one of those other articles. I think this happened 16 months ago, and so or 13 months ago, and they keep logs for six months. Oh, and one of the things yeah. they said was, "Hey, let us know sooner. You know, we can take a look at it." So there would have been some logs, but because it's over a year old, yeah. I don't know that they're going to be able to do all of the forensics in the school district level. Maybe I don't think law enforcement would be involved in this to do you know a deeper a deeper dive, but right. Well, and you know, I I also agree that that you know I, I I feel like schools are held up to a high standard, but the problem that that happens here in 2018 is that the majority of students, if not the vast majority of students, are carrying around devices that are on an unfiltered internet connection, and parents oftentimes have no really idea what to do about that information. There are good tools available where you can limit your students' internet access, and if I were a parent. Um, of especially of, of, of early teens or tweens or, or younger students, I think I would utilize a filtering solution or at least a logging solution so we can have conversations about stuff. But even those things, the best done tools are oftentimes not foolproof. And I think you know, diligence on the part of, you know, obviously schools monitoring students as they use computers is part of it. You can't monitor students 24 hours a day uh, in a one-to-one -one, uh, device environment. But, you know, making sure that, um, you know, that, that there is a regular supervision so that students, um, you know, are have some sense that adults are around. Right. Um, and to be clear, you could sneak in a, a naughty photo 40 years ago from a magazine you found in a parking lot. So it's not like the technology piece of this totally shifts the conversation. Right? I get how it's easier to find stuff. Right. It's easier to distribute stuff. It's easier to copy stuff. But, you know, it, it's still, you know, it, it's same thing. Same responses are required. Yeah, and the access to darkness that we have today is also unprecedented, right? Yeah. So, um, gosh, I, I don't. I mean, I've we've heard different stories of, of school districts, you know, putting Wi-Fi on buses, and of course that is that is filtered. But uh, yeah, I mean, we, we we're going to have to have multiple layers, and and we're going to have to recognize that things things can happen, and things can happen quickly. And one of our goals is hopefully to equip students to be able to make choices and, and let's say leave the nest, you know, whether that's college or anywhere else, uh, being able to handle a, an unfiltered web and not fall into a variety of pits and traps, which are going to be out there 
um, for people to fall into. We had a conversation today at school talking about, you know, college food and the ways in which these buffets of, you know, what kind of food do you want and not gaining 50 pounds. I mean, forget the freshman 15. I mean, you know, that are, are we equipping kids to be able to handle this world of choice? And so that manifests itself in different ways. You go to Starbucks and how many different drink possibilities are there? You walk into 7-Eleven, you know, how many different kinds of candy and, and, uh, and, and ices and drinks are there? Um, you know, the web is this incredible buffet of content. And so, um, the ethics and the, uh, propriety with which we, we, you know, navigate is important. And unfortunately, this could happen to any school district, I think. So kudos to um, the school district in Ridgewood and the IT manager, uh, Serhi Morhun. Uh, excellent presentation. Phenomenal set of filters and security security um, and protection pieces that are in place. And also, I would say, shout out, a respect for balanced filtering, right? Those words. Yeah actually in the slides, recognizing that it's hard to walk this line between providing a, uh, a safe and, and protected web experience, but also not having a draconianly filtered web experience. And that was really what I was responding to with Kevin Tofel. And I think I'll probably write a blog post about that. Maybe we'll have some a snow day on Friday. Who knows? But anyway, in the not too distant future, I'm going to write something about that. And that's that's where we just we don't we shouldn't be acting like China. We shouldn't be, you know, blocking everything and just whitelisting, you know, the websites that are part of the curriculum and saying, hey, the rest of the web is, is blocked off for you. You want to learn about Tiananmen Square? No, you don't want to learn about that. We're going to block that. Yep. Uh, let me do a couple other quick ones. Um, there's uh, speaking of uh, Google Hangouts, and I don't know what that weird glitch was today. We haven't had a, a glitch like that in a while. Um, 9 to 5 Mac reported on December 2nd, 2019 is your last year to use Google Hangouts Classic if you haven't moved on already. And it sounds like a little bit like Google Plus, it may still remain available for G Suite users. But if that does happen, then yours truly and Jason will, you know, have to find a different live platform. Not that we have that many people joining, you know, and, and we could probably very readily, uh, you know, move to Zoom or some other platforms. Um, and, you know, I don't, I don't know. It, it's cool that anybody who wants to join us can join us live. So maybe it's Twitch or something else. I mean, we may have to look at a different platform, but, but that was, uh, interesting to see. Um, and then one other one, and this is one that I've actually moved up from several different weeks. So it's a, a little old, but I put it under op-eds and it's from the New Yorker on November the 12th. Why doctors hate their computers. And, um, <laughs> this is a long read, but basically it's saying that when, um, medical records and medical processes have become digitized. Those that have been, you know, talking to all the constituents basically have put so much bureaucracy into the system that it has led, led to a situation where things that were helpful in the past are not helpful now. Like some doctors to kind of cover themselves or whatever, or because it's easy, will copy and paste so much information and put it into a, 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 a uh, patient's record that it's not like the handwritten notes that used to really give some some concise and specific detail about that particular you know patient's condition um, and just the levels of approval where you know a doctor could say hey I want this test or whatever and now you know because of of, of insurance and liability and all these different things there's just a whole set of of check boxes and so some doctors are going home and having to face hours of you know, further documenting what they had done during the day and 
basically IT hasn't hasn't delivered in some cases, and I don't can't say if it's a majority, but in in some cases, uh, you know, really a benefit from the perspective of doctors. So I thought both of those were pretty interesting. Any thoughts or comments there? Well, as someone that, uh, we haven't mentioned this lately, uh, I think good news, I had a lot of interaction three years ago with, with the medical communities. I had a kidney transplant, and uh, you might imagine comes with a lot of medical records. I, I, I like in 2018 that so many medical records are available to end users, right? Like I can, I can go in right now and see copies of x-rays. I can get surgical reports. I can read uh, uh, visit summaries and test results. And that's very empowering to me as a consumer of healthcare. But I also have seen doctors, my smart, trusted, uh, very capable doctors struggle with the systems that they have to use. And uh, when I first saw that headline before I read the, the, the article in a little more detail, Wes, I would just kept thinking about how like, uh, well, first of all, every doctor's office I've been in, they don't use new computers, right? That they use systems that are oftentimes quite dated. I imagine that's because things are locked down and they have a security protocol that doesn't kind of go up with the times. But I've never heard any single medical professional I've engaged with in the past six or seven years as a heavy user of uh, uh, medical uh, products and services like their computer system. And so that's that's sad to me because like even uh, like like even in districts where people don't like the, the the technology maybe it's dated like they're still using it and they can still use it to make some magic and yet um, that's I think that that's a sad reality of the medical community. Did you put in the Guli- the Giuliani? Uh, article? Do you want to talk about that? One? I did, just because I laughed at it pretty hard. So, uh, I, Twitter's funny, right? Like, and Twitter's at the, the height of, of our political discourse right now, because, of course, our president likes to tweet. Um, but yesterday, uh, Rudy Giuliani, who's part of President Trump's legal team, uh, belted out a, a kind of a passionate defense of the president, as he has done. And apparently Twitter is the preferred group of, of, of the Trump and his team. And uh, you probably know this if you use Twitter, but if you type a URL or something that even looks like a URL to legitimately uh, 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 a top-level domain and then uh, an extension, that it, it creates an automatic link. And so yesterday, um, uh, Mr. Giuliani uh, sent out a, a tweet, and it just so happened that the a tweet that he pushed out um, uh, uh, was G-20, and then he put a period for a sentence, and then top, uh, then dot, then I-N, so it's the end of a sentence, present left for G-20 period in July. Well, G-20.IN is a domain. Dot I-N is a top level domain, right? So you can buy knifer.IN if you want to, or, uh, you know, that's, that's the thing you can do. So some, uh, you know, Twitter made that into a clickable URL, and some, um, clever person decided to go by g-20.in, so that's the thing that you click on in Twitter, and they put a phrase there that, that in a simple page says, Donald J. Trump is a traitor to our country. Um, and uh, that it's changed today. They've now added, like, a piece of news there that sends it to a Reddit conversation, so something a little more than that. But the bottom line is now uh, Julian is freaking out because, you know, Twitter did this to him, and it wasn't his intention, and blah, 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 blah. But you delete the tweet and retweet it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And so the other piece that I would also say is that 
it pays to know how your tool works. Is that's all I'm going to say, right? And uh, I'll, uh, you know, Wes and I, I'm, I'm, both of us have political opinions. They have nothing to do with this. The bottom line is, is that know the tool that you're using. <laughs> yes, and you can, yeah. Um, and who was who was his English teacher? Because in the same tweet, he you know skipped the spaces after, <laughs> after punctuation. So you know, shout out to English teachers everywhere. Thank you for helping us. Remember how to do appropriate punctuation when your students become, you know, lawyers and, and folks on the on the global stage. Maybe they will avoid embarrassing themselves because they'll remember to put spaces behind yep. punctuation. All right. Um, let's see. I think you put this one into Amazon. Trump administration releases Postal Service review after Amazon attacks. Of course, this is also related to Twitter and and and. Uh, you know, Twitter rants, but this was pretty interesting uh, that this Postal Service report, 70-page report, came out from the Treasury Department uh, basically saying that, you know, the Postal Service is not long-range, you know, probably going to be profitable. It's very complex. There are more issues at play than just Amazon because that was the contention that, that right. our chief executive made was that it was, you know, being the, the postal boy or whatever of, of Amazon, but it's, it's complex and they were recommending some changes to package pricing to see, you know, see that that would, would increase. So, um, I don't know. Is there an educational tie to this one? Uh, other than, you know, disruptions everywhere, right? Like I, the, the, one of the points the report made is that, uh, that as it, you know, recently, the increase in Patrick, package traffic has actually helped the Postal Service because, uh, you know, they obviously took a, a huge, uh, decrease in traffic with, you know, due to, due to email and the internet. Right, like bills don't come anymore. Uh, people aren't mailing you know, letters anymore, and so the package traffic increase in package traffic it actually helped uh, you know, create some some intermediate stability. But long term, especially as folks like Amazon talk about creating their own postal services, right? Like it, it may be drone based, it may just be trucks going around neighborhoods with Amazon symbols on them. And obviously, Amazon is a big user of both UPS and FedEx as well, so that, that helps uh, those private services. But if for nothing else, um, you know, like we're all dealing with the disruption. Mm. Something else I would comment going back to the one that we were just talking about with, with, with Twitter and that link to Reddit. My son has been into Reddit for a long time. And uh, are you a Reddit user? I, I am, but but I uh, it's it's uh, the my my favorite Reddit is actually uh, the Chrome OS one. So yeah, I mean when you're interested in a niche, um, it's pretty incredible what you know crowdsourced passionate people who are interested in in niche topics. Or I mean in this case, this was from the, the politics uh, one, but. Um, that probably should go on our list of literacy tools, right? Just like it would be good for all teachers to know Wikipedia and understand how Wikipedia works and, you know, un understand it in a much deeper way than Wikipedia bad, Britannica good. Um, Reddit is probably one of those things that we should all know a little bit more about um, because of, um, you know, how, how many people are getting their news from, from that. And I think it's become, I don't know, I don't know how mainstream that is, but it's not on my not on my list of, uh, of tools that I use, but, it, you know, maybe it should join that. I'll do one more fast one, and we can do some Geeks of the Week. This is old, but this is October 11th, 2018. Boston Dynamics Atlas can now chase you up the stairs. One of my favorite things to share when I was back in the classroom a few years ago, uh, in 2013 to 2015, I called Curiosity Links, and these were just really amazing videos, articles, 
things that would get kids talking and, and focused on STEM. And so the Boston Dynamics videos of robots, if you haven't seen those, have been doing that for quite a while. So, wow, uh, seeing this, you know, humanoid uh, jumping up these stairs. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Think about DARPA, the, Def the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency you know, being 10 to 20 years ahead of where we are as consumers with technology, uh, the battlefield of the future, you know, thinking about, thinking about robots, it is pretty crazy. So that, um, of course, you know, we can say a lot of different things about that, but we need, we need students who are ethical and who are able to, uh, you know, divide, be able to code and develop these kinds of tools and use them for good and not for evil. That would be one, one spin to put on that. And it's also just something to, to get folks thinking about robotics and the increasing role those are going to be playing in our lives. I'll mention as an aside, I saw the first drone over a street in Oklahoma City yesterday. Um, I was just driving north from our school and I was looking to try to find who it was, but it was like, I don't know how many different propellers. I mean, this was a laden drone with, with, uh, you know, multiple cameras and, and it, it was not, I mean, it was it was not a an inexpensive device. Um, have not seen one of those over a city street before, and uh, yeah, the visibility of drones in the air, and then you know, uh, we're not seeing robots like that running around outside. We're probably having folks with what? What's do you, do you have a Roomba, Jason? Is that on? Would that be at the top of your technology uh, list for next week? Um, you know, we've always talked about getting one, but we just don't have enough carpet to justify it. So, uh, yeah, I, although I've seen, them, I've seen them at work, they're pretty clever. Right. Okay, well, let's Geek of the Week it. We're at the top of the hour. Uh, what do you have for us this week? I'd like to share, for those of you that maybe have projects outside of schooling, there's a really wonderful website that helps uh, uh, give away or, or, or find cheap access to technology, particular software for nonprofits. It's called TechSoup, TechSoup.org, and they have a variety of wonderful, highly discounted, or in some cases free, uh, uh, commercial software available to nonprofit organizations. And um, I've used this and with, with a couple of different nonprofits and recommended it. it's an easy way to qualify for Google for nonprofits, which includes things like AdWord grants, um, there are a variety of commercial pieces of software, like the Adobe Suite is available for dirt cheap to nonprofits in, in this way. And for nonprofits that are just getting started, it's not premier, super fast, modern 2018 computers, but if you're looking for good enough computers for business work, they, they have people that are willing to give away computers as well. So that's techsoup.org. Awesome. And my Geek of the Week is a two-part podcast. I think we've mentioned before how wonderful the New York Times podcast, The Daily, is. I have that on my rotation on my Google Assistant when I, I say, hey, G, good morning, and it gives me, you know, time and weather and then starts to go down the news. I think it's the, the fourth one that I have. I've got, like, Reuters News. BBC, which runs an hour, so I don't usually listen to that all the time. NPR technology, and then number four for me is the daily. And so they've got a two-part series. Part two just went up today. Um, what the West got wrong about China. And it is absolutely fascinating. You know, one of my undergraduate degrees was in political science. And so I really, you know, have done a fair amount of reading and study about political systems and economic systems. And because I've had a chance to visit 
China, mainland China four times in, or three times in Hong Kong once since 2007, you know, each time I've emerged going, this is not the communism or the political system that I ever studied. You know, what is this? And so in uh, part one, they really go, go down how, you know, the United States thought um, that the Internet was going to open up China, that China was not going to be able to tame the web. Um, and there, there's just there's some great, great stuff that China is so important for us to understand and for our students to understand. There's not a guarantee that they're going to dominate the politics or the economy of the future, but there's a very strong likelihood that they'll play a very important role uh, and they could be dominant. And um, probably on a, you know, one of the most important things they talk about is freedom of expression and the ways in which China has effectively leveraged the tools of, uh, you know, content filtering and censorship uh, to, you know, make sure that people are not talking uh, about, you know, organizing in the name of democracy, that Tiananmen Square is not something that you can learn about in terms of the pro-democracy movement from, what, 1989. Um, and the ways in which companies now like Google and Apple as well are playing by the Chinese rules. In the second part, it's fascinating about Hollywood and the power that China has. I didn't know this, but that movie Red Dawn that was from the 80s, originally that was going to be about China, but China got involved and, and uh, pushed back. And then, you know, the, the uh, writers ended up having to make that about North Korea. They are very, very, uh, diligent about trying to curate or trying to polish their image. And Richard Gere, I think, was somebody that they mentioned who's been blacklisted, can't even travel to China. His movies aren't even distributed there because in 1997, you know, he was a lead actor in a movie that was really negative about China. So absolutely fascinating. Great podcast, um, usually about 20 minutes long each. Well worth your time. So, Jason, what do we have next week for our listeners? Well, we are going to do a little, like, tech shopping show. And I get this question uh, asked to me quite a bit, too, that you'll be shocked to find out, dear listener, I'm a nerd, so I do nerdy things and I'm into nerdy stuff. And I get asked quite a bit about, you know, what are great gifts uh, that uh, nerds uh, might enjoy. And so if you have geeks in your life, next week we are going to do um, kind of a technology shopping cart episode. And so um, if you have ideas, uh, we got a tw- uh, uh, West released tweet um, earlier uh, today to uh, kind of elicit suggestions, and we're going to kind of make some of our own suggestions and talk a little bit about the geeky Christmas and what that might look like and things you can get the geek in your life. Awesome. So that will again be at our regular time on Wednesday night. Whether you can join us live or not, uh, please chime in on the doc. We've got uh, a few categories for IoT, smartphone, gadget, software, other ideas. We'll see. Uh, but that's what we're going to try for next week. So, Jason, where can our radio and, well, podcasting, audi- listening and watching audience tune in to you when you're not here on the show? I'm best on Twitter, actually. Tech Savvy Teach is what I am on the Twitters. And I also uh, help out at the Northwest Council for Computer Education, NCCE, where we have a, a wonderful February conference, of which there's just over a month left of early bird pricing. If you want to join us in Seattle in February, NCC underscore ed tech is their Twitter handle, and then uh, you can go to ncc.org and learn more about the conference or other professional development activities from those fine folks. And you, sir, 
I am W Fryer on Twitter and speedofcreativity.org on the blog. So we want to thank everybody for tuning in. Peggy, thank you for joining us live as always. And until next time, we encourage everyone to stay stabby and stay safe out there. Stay safe, kids. It's a dangerous world. And good night.